TechLit Africa is a nonprofit on a mission to lessen African poverty by leveraging the internet. Rural Africans lack both digital skills and computers, and therefore can't really participate in the digital economy, even though developing countries have plenty of used computers. That's where TechLit Africa comes in. They accept used computers, refurbish them with custom classroom software, ship them to Africa, and establish relationships with schools that provide space for the labs they create. In this episode, I interview Nelly Chiboy, one of the founders of TechLit Africa. Nelly, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. <laughs> when you last spoke with Jeff, I think it's been about two years now, during that interview, you were in your apartment or house, you had just quit your job, you had 30 computers in your home, and uh, you needed a way to get them to Africa. How'd that all pan out? It was great. It was a great learning experience. So we got we got to Kenya, and our idea was to work with the adults because a quick quickest win was to get the adults to start using to start making money online and we just figured that if we spend a few months with them teaching them wordpress and teaching them i don't know all these things then maybe they can start making money online on either fiverr or upwork or if we could get someone in chicago to you know to hire them for website building and then it was just really hard to get them to show up it was really hard to get them to commit and we quickly realized that life was getting in the way it was really hard to get someone who has never used a computer before to show up at a classroom in a school and expect them to spend 6 hours a day just trying to you know learn stuff online and so, <laughs> meanwhile, we had kids just hanging out, just trying to see a computer, trying to see what the deal was. And and after a month of trying to get the adults, so initially we just wanted to grow the impact, right? We just think we just need three people. If we can get three people to come in, like you know, daily recurring user, come back every day, then maybe we can do four the week after and five the week after. But to re- retain them and even get them to to come back, it was almost impossible and so with a heavy heart we switched to kids I mean not because it felt like if we could get the adults making money online immediately it would be such a good win but we, we couldn't and so we switched to kids because kids were just there at the school just wanting to see a computer and when we switched to kids we had 60 kids the first day <laughs> it's the first day and then the next week it was 120 so beating those like small growth numbers from the adults. Do I need to provide any context or? Well, let's get into that too. Yeah, maybe we should start at the top level with what is TechLit Africa? <laughs> okay, right. So TechLit Africa is a nonprofit organization that my co-founder, Tyler, and I started in 2018. And starting TechLit Africa came from my own experience growing up in Kenya. So I grew up I grew up in poverty and I've always been motivated to to tackle poverty and I drew most of my experiences from watching my mom really struggle to put us through school. There's four of us, we have four girls. And and so I saw education as the easiest way out of poverty. Studied really hard and got a scholarship to come to America. And when I got to America in 2012, that's really the first time I ever used a computer. So growing up in rural Kenya, I'd seen computers around, but I'd never really used one. 
And I later discovered computer science as a junior in college, which is much, much later because I only had one year left of my, my degree. And so I quickly switched my major to computer science and got a degree in computer science. But in that computer science class, I was so far behind. I did not know what a terminal was. I did not know what even like looking stuff up in the internet was. I was, I don't even know typing. So the way I would type is I would try to look at the keys on the keyboard. And so I felt so insufficient in that computer science class and it constantly reminded me of no matter how hardworking I was as a person no matter how I I was really hardworking but still just because I grew up in rural Kenya just because of that I'm already behind even though I worked so hard I read all the books I'm still behind and I kept thinking about my community back home how they're not growing up with computers and how just like computers are driving the economy right now everything is online billions and billions of dollars are just moving around on the internet and for an entire community an entire generation to be left behind was just not fair and so i i built a school with the idea of trying to see if i can incorporate incorporate computer science as part of of kids curriculum growing up so the school when i built in 2015 the school did really well i just had $3000 so i built a simple building like a ecd center and then the the following year we had like so we started, like the first week we had 15 kids we opened in 2016 january we had 15 kids the first week and then at the end of the year we had about 100 kids so the program was doing really well but then i realized that to Building schools is really hard and it's going to be really hard to impact as many people as I can (laughs) uh, building schools because it's so hard to fundraise. It takes a lot of money. But what I said I could do is that I could take these computers that are going to waste and, and try to, you know, incorporate some kind of curriculum, some kind of training into existing schools. And that's how the organization started. So in, in 2018, we had just collected some computers and we were flying to Kenya to start to start a you know a program just initially we wanted to get the adults so get the adults into schools to start using computers and learning programming and then we quickly realized that actually kids is where we have traction and kids is where we can have the most impact i think that's <laughs> kind of gives you the overarching goal of what we're doing absolutely Why I grew up in the United States and I have a very American-centric understanding of education. Here we have public schools and some private schools. And I guess there are things you can go to after school or on the weekends to get supplemental materials. What is the typical experience for a young Kenyan going through the education system? And where did your schools fit in? Okay, so it's it's pretty similar. So we have schools, we have public schools and we have private schools. But most of the schools are just a room like a room nothing else in the room sometimes we have like stickers on the walls but it's not as as colorful as what i've seen american classrooms are there's you know a powerpoint presentation there's blocks over here it's very uh, the american classrooms are very immersive and then if you look at the schools in kenya it's just a desk a blackboard and then a, a teacher comes in and just copy the notes from the textbook to the blackboard. The students copy from the blackboard to the notebook and then memorize it, right? And I think the reason it's like that is because it's under-resourced. I don't think it's anything particular about the culture. It's really about if you don't have those resources, if you don't have computers, if you don't have enough textbooks, if you don't have all these toys you can use to teach in, the, in an unplugged way, you just 
all you're left with is just a textbook and you know in notes yeah i think most listeners know the term digital divide but maybe not the specifics of it can you share or contrast some of the major differences between growing up in Kenya and what you had access to, to what uh, typical or not typical, but uh, I guess there's no typical American, but maybe on average, what uh, a person from the United States has access to? Yeah, I think so. What I've what I've seen here is that you actually when you go through school here, you have touch typing classes at fifth grade, right? You start having touch typing classes. I mean, I did not... Pretty early, yeah. Yeah. You have... So you're learning how to touch type, and then you also have presentation... Cl- like, you, you make PowerPoint presentations. Sometimes you, you do documents, and then you have a computer lab that you, you go to. I know I know not most old schools have coding, which is a newer thing, but in terms of just using computers and the elements of, you know, using computers for research, using computer for, you know, creating a portfolio, you already have that as part of your of your, of your learning from what I assume, I didn't go to school yet, so I wouldn't know. But in Kenya, especially in rural Kenya, all you have is just a textbook. And sometimes it's a professor's textbook, a teacher's textbook. So that's all you have. You have a textbook and the professor comes into the, the room and just takes some notes, you know, just notes on the board. You copy that and then you have an exam, right? There's no there's no practical, you're not making presentations. You're So you're just learning, you know, basic sciences, you know, English, you know, math, and then Kiswahili. And so in terms of, you really don't have, it's just a textbook. That's the far we've gotten. It's just a textbook. And and so that's our, our efforts with, with TechLed Africa to bring computers into the, into the lab, lab. I mean, to bring computers into the school. It's so, it's so important because again, the reason it's like that is because we don't have, they don't, we don't have the resources, nothing, nothing specific about that. And so what we are doing is that we are bringing computers. And with computers, you can actually have all these resources, right? You can have, you can even go as far as having VR and you can do simulation for what, what you need. So it's such an easy resource to re, uh, redistribute and kind of covers like 90% of what you will need in a class. So let's say you want to learn about pollination, you can find a video on a computer and, and watch that. You want to learn about you can do unplugged activities with block-based programming on a computer. You can see how to make videos on and design and PowerPoints on a computer. So it almost brings the class to life when you have a computer, even though you don't have all the other resources that I see American schools have. What about internet connectivity? Uh, what's the infrastructure like? That's a really good question. So I think imagine that instead of having internet all the time with you, imagine you had at 7 p.m. every day, you could get 500 MB of data for a dollar. And so you're going about your day doing doing something, no internet whatsoever, and then at, at 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. you have 500 MB. And, and, and that's, that's really, so people have, people know the value of the internet, they have it, but they don't have it on their hand all the time. And so, what it looks like is that at the end of the day, after doing your your job, maybe it's um, you know construction, maybe it's kind of a taxi service. At the end of the day, it's like watching the news. You're unwinding on the internet. So you you spend a dollar, you only have one hour with 500 MB, and then most of the time that 500 MB you're just gonna use it to watch, you know, catch up on social media and and 
I don't know what else, <laughs> just be on social media or TikTok or, you know, Facebook Lite. And so most people, they get the internet through their mobile phones. It costs about a dollar for a GB, but it's only, it's not unlimited, right? It's a dollar and it's only for a period. So you can get a dollar for, for 24 hours, right? But it's going to expire. Or you can get two GB for one hour and it's going to expire. And so what, what that actually means is that it's really hard to use the internet to produce. It's really hard to use the internet to learn. Let's say you want to learn guitar lessons, for example, or you want to learn programming. 500 MB is only what? Two YouTube tutorials? So it's really hard. And then imagine downloading, you know, NPM and all these things. And so most people are mostly using the internet for just social media right and then when what we are trying to do is that we are trying to provide people the means of production so that learning how to you know build a brand building websites social media marketing we are trying to provide people with the skills that they will need so that they can they can justify spending 10 times that they're spending on the internet because they're going to make it much uh, as much and so most of the time it's just mobile data like you would have on your phone no one has home wi-fi but it's slowly starting, starting to, you know, to pop up that people are having home Wi-Fi. But mostly it's just mobile data. And it's limited in terms of time and also limited in terms of the, the bundles, you know, like 500 MB or 1 GB of data. And then how do you contend with that in the classroom? Do you have connectivity there or do you face similar issues? I can paint a picture of, of how we do it. So what we do is we go into schools, into existing schools, and we tell the, the teachers or the, the schools to give us a room. So they give us a room and the room already has, you know, electricity wired up. Sometimes we bring in the furniture, there's already security and we bring our own computers. So our computers already have, already have its own operating system. So like it's just a modified Linux version. So we, we, we have modified our Linux desktop to be more intuitive for the kids and then we have our curriculum in it and so we don't use the internet because it's very expensive what we do instead is that we curate the data that we serve in the computer room so in the computer lab all the computers are networked we have a server and then the server contains all the lessons that that we need and we, what we are teaching the kids is we are teaching them this the skills that they will need to be productive online so we don't need the internet to teach them about touch typing. We just build a React app that they can they can just, you know, they can learn touch typing from that. We don't need the internet to teach them about coding. We just have we have Scratch and we have other block-based programming. We can we have some videos that we downloaded from the internet that they are using. So most of our skills go around, you know, it's mostly self-efficacy, uh, motivating the kids to learn about just be motivated to learn on your own and then also using the skills, using the the programs and the apps that we're putting together in our operating system. Like one of them is another React app that we call Social. And the main thing of that React app is to get them to learn how to represent themselves online. So think of MySpace, you know, you're building kind of like your, your profile and you can modify your profile with HTML. You can chat with other people. And so... Our program is mostly really on the skills as opposed to, to the internet itself. So we just curate our own data and our own lessons. Well, the classroom experience you described earlier where the textbook is the whole of the technology, you know, you present it, uh, take a quiz, it's quite different then to sit in front of a computer. How do the children take to it? 
Oh, they love it. They really love it because <laughs> it's so, because it is everything in it. And the coolest thing is that actually we, we do start with, so most of our, most of the kids we are working with have never seen a computer before. And then, so we just start with the, the basics. So they're just learning how to use a mouse. And then the next thing that we do is that we have a multiplayer super tax game, which is like Mario Kart. And the game is networked. And then, so they are able to race with each other, create server create servers, some of them joining as client and they're able to chat like on the lobby they're chatting with each other and so to them this is the most exciting thing of their day they they love it and 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 so when they come to this this room they're in charge of their own learning we're not lecturing them like what they're used to in the class they're coming in and they they are just playing a game that's very early in the beginning they're just playing a game with their friends and they're learning about chatting and typing and then even when we go on to touch typing on our React app, we the reason we built our own application is because we want to keep iterating on it. We want to see what's working, what is not working. And even the React app is gamified. And so we have leaderboards, we have different you know badges, and then they can also compete with each other. And so we are leveraging... When they're coming in, they're coming in as a group, so 20 kids into a room, and then we're just leveraging the social aspect of it. So they are all coming in, and they're all having so much fun together. They're all competing with each other. It's their favorite thing of their day, and most of the schools that we have gone to have increased attendance tenfold. Like, most kids sometimes will miss school, but ever since we, if we come in and build a computer lab and we run our computer labs, they just come to school every day, so... (laughs) So you guys are a nonprofit, and a lot of nonprofits try and quantify. Do you have any metrics along these lines? It seems like a small investment of giving a computer has this, I don't know, tenfold or x-fold improvement in educational experiences. How do you measure the efficacy of the project? So both myself and my my co-founder Tyler are both software engineers, and so and and we have the, we have the opportunity like our operating system we we are building it right we have it's linux yes but we are we are building it so we have logins so we we can track uh i mean without identifying the kids we can track what games they're playing what they're struggling with you know how much progress they're making on touch typing and also the coolest thing uh, on top of that is that we have our own our own teachers so we opted to get community members from the area, people who just graduated high school or graduated college, and we train them intensively how to run these classes. So they are going through the process of, you know, learning touch typing, learning, you know, whatever, like 3D modeling from Blender. And they're the ones who are in the class every day with the kids, seeing the impact, right? Seeing how the product is working. And then at the end of the day, when we have stand-up, they're able to give feedback and we're able to iterate on the product. And so we are spending time with the kids, you know, every single day from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And every two days we are seeing the entire school. And so it's really easy to track is, is our touch typing application working? How many kids are learning to touch type? How many kids have made past their home row? How many kids are using their pinkies? You know, how many of them are comfortable using a computer? And then when we go on to do coding how many kids are able to how long does it take for a kid to how long does it take for a kid to to build an application and also play that game yeah so in terms of of impact we have worked with with 4000 kids so far we have been to 10 schools and then those 4000 kids can comfortably type and they can comfortably build an application on scratch and right now we're trying to explore 3d modeling you know <laughs> where do you source the machines from 
normally we we work with with companies so i started with asking my previous college agustana college i started asking them to donate some computers uh, they had some and um they donated it to us my previous employer too donated a few so it's mostly just asking people around uh, mostly it people what they do with their own equipment and then when we take the computers we we, we go through and um we have we have partners with itad businesses and then they're the ones sometimes we we go through the process of wiping the data or or they do wipe the wipe the data and so most of the times we are mostly asking corporations and it individuals in those corporations what they are doing with their old equipment and then it turns out on average uh, most companies upgrade their computers uh, around every 3 years and so we're just building partnerships and telling them that instead of your computers going to waste if you give it to us we can extend its lifetime over in Kenya. Yeah, I know a lot of companies uh, I don't have any stats on this but as far as I can tell the biggest category is to label the old machine as e-waste and it's actually a problem. Uh how can we turn that problem into an opportunity? I mean, I think I think it's it's just it's really sad. I mean, sometimes it's just easier because you have all this equipment you don't know what to do with it. Most of the companies are scared of their data on their hard drive. And and so they just get a company to come over and take it. You know, they pay some money, have a company take over, and then some of those companies may I don't know how they work, but I think we're only recycling eleven percent of. Last I checked, eleven percent of e-waste. You know, so it's a really big problem. I just think it's a really big problem environmentally. So if we can be able to extend the lives of those computers, and some of them, are, like a computer from three years ago, is not that bad. It's actually really good. It really is. Know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know there are a lot of IT people listening, maybe some of the decision makers or people that report to them. And a concern I'm imagining for if, you know, I went to a boss and said, "Hey, I think we should give our computers to this organization" is like you say, "Well, we've got the data on there. How can I trust it's going to get wiped and we're going to protect our customers' privacy and all that?" Uh how can you set somebody's mind at ease in that regard? I think it it depends on the on the level they're coming in at. So, I had businesses, uh it's which starts for I I should slipping my mind what they stand for. I think it's IT asset disposal or management or distribution something like that. And and then what they do is actually they have they are audited, right? They have their own truck. They come in and they they pick up the computers and then they already have all the compliance certificates and they go in and they you know, they actually wipe the data, right? Using some you can use shred, you can use different things how to wipe the data. So these companies are already have the compliance. And so most companies if they're worried about that, they could contract one of our partner IT businesses to come in and do that. But that comes in at a cost because these IT businesses are are doing that for you. And some companies, fairly most IT companies, they're actually okay doing their own data destruction, which is just running shred commands and, you know, writing random bytes on a on a hard drive like four times, five times. And that is good actually <laughs> i think that's good so some some most of the companies that we have gotten computers from they have actually opted to do their own data destruction some other companies they just take the hard drives and then they give us the machine without the hard drives so it just depends on 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 what their biggest concern is and how, what level they are coming in at some companies we have done the destruction ourselves data destruction ourselves so it just depends on what level of comfort or odd level of assurance they need but it, it is a problem though. 
Yeah, earlier we'd said three years ago was not an old machine. I have to confess the one I'm currently using is about eight years old. After a newer oh MacBook failed, I had to go back to an older MacBook. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Yeah, I had so many <laughs> of the new ones. We had three of the new ones fail, so I rolled back to my own. So it seems like there's a range of technology you could accept and still make use of. Is there a minimum people should consider? What's the minimum viable machine they might want to pass your way? I think we, we don't have that yet because... We, as part of this, we also want to be good citizens. So if someone, because we, we are in the in the sector and we know how to recycle machines and we know how to, like, who, who partner with. So we take all the equipment, really, and then we we go through and, and try to see which ones we can use and which ones we can recycle. And then for the recycled ones, we just find some recycling farms who, who do, do the recycling for those that we cannot reuse. So I think it's, you don't have to worry about it. If you have a computer, let us know. Like, Just reach out, let us know, and we will know where to put them. <laughs> Do you face any challenges amongst the variety of machines you might get? Different CPUs, different hard drives, memory. Uh, there's so much options, and, and it seems like there's lots of things that could come your way. Does that pose any challenge for your software? No, because it's Linux, I feel like Linux is very uh, accommodating. <laughs> and then it's just depending on what applications that we are running. We have some really old machines, like some from 2005 that are still in our computer labs and they're just working fine. And so it just, for those machines, we know what applications not to run or we just encourage the kids not to open like three applications at once. Makes sense. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the supply chain challenges? Once you've got these machines donated, uh, there's a lot of steps before they're there in the schools helping students. Oh my God. First of all, like when we started, we used to put all the computers in our bags. So we would take, <laughs> we'll just put all the computers in our, in our backpack and not in our, in our luggage and, and ship it over to, to Kenya. And every time we'll call, we'll try to call all the airlines and be like, Hey, how much, what is your lithium restriction? How can we, you know, that was quite a challenge. And then we went on to try to import the computers ourselves. So we, we, found a freight forwarder, go through the import process. That was really expensive because Kenya has a 25% you know, charge on used computers because they want to reduce, they want to discourage people bringing in old equipment and then you know, dumping them there, right? And we have tried to really get a waiver because we're a nonprofit, but it's really hard. It's understandable why they have that charge because you know we don't want to get all the e-waste in the country. And so our biggest efforts really when we are fundraising, it really goes towards just getting the computers to Kenya. Like we're not even fundraising really for salary or for, it's just really like our biggest expense, almost like 80% of our cost is just importing the computers over there. And the biggest challenge is that most donors don't understand that, right? They'll be like, why are you giving you this much money to go pay the Kenyan government to help their kids? And you'll try to explain to them, it's not really the Kenyan government, it's, it's really just the systems that we don't want to have EWS in the country. And it really makes sense to have that, that rule in, in place. And so that continues to be our biggest challenge. And recently we found a company that actually handles all the imports and all the imports and the logistics. And all we have to do is ship them, let's say the laptop to their office in, in Texas, and then they get it over to Kenya within nine days which is pretty neat. So if you are listening and you have some computers, you can actually, if you want to get them over to Kenya, 
you can just ship into our consolidator in Texas and then within nine days we can get it to Kenya. And the cost for that is about fifty dollars a laptop because they 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 charge per pound. So for every two pounds it's twelve dollars. Um so that's that's the one we are going up with. But then if we are looking at two thousand laptops, then it ends up being about a hundred K. So it still also adds up, you know. And the biggest challenge has continu- has always been getting the computers there. And even if we were to get the computers in the country, right, get the computers in Kenya, the cost is really high because these computers are being imported anyway. So someone else, you're covering for someone else import costs. Right, yeah. I mean, these are some big challenges. I hope you have success with that uh, exemption you'd mentioned. That sounds like a very well-intentioned law for which you should be an exception. I know, I know. Right, yeah. It's just hard. It's hard to... Because they don't really actually make any exceptions. They have, we have really tried at one. I think there's one time where the government tried to import tablets to for for the for the offices, but even even the government could go get an exemption an exception. So we're not too optimistic there. <laughs> well, when you look at your roadmap, I assume maybe growth is where you want to go. You have a nice system uh, that could be scaled up. What are some of the barriers along the way that you're facing? So, in terms of what I'm really proud of right now is that we have really talented people on the ground. Uh, we have 20 teachers right now who are showing up every day in the classrooms and helping the computer labs run. And I think one of our biggest challenges really is adoption, which you'll be surprised because most of the, the schools, they don't understand why, what the value of the computers are, right? And most of them say, oh, it would be nice for kids to know how to use the computers. So to them, it's really hard to describe that. This is such an amazing resource. This is such this is a resource that can actually help uplift the whole community out of poverty because you know someone someone just started making eight dollars an hour on the internet instead of making four dollars a day is such a really awesome wage in in that community, and most of them don't believe us. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's just really hard to get some. They don't have a mental model to map this to, right? Because the jobs they're used to is. If you're really successful, you're a doctor, right, or a or a teacher or something like that. So to tell them that these kids can start when they grow up, they can start creating value and they can start producing value from the internet. They don't get it. And so when we go into schools and we try to work with them, it takes a really a lot of convincing to get them to do it. So that's that's one challenge that we are constantly trying to find ways to overcome. Another challenge is that for every school we go into, we are adding two teachers, right? We are adding two teachers that we are training. And then so if we are looking at 100 labs next year, then we are looking at about 200 teachers. And with every headcount, you know, there's always a lot of challenges. I have really appreciated HR recently. I, I mean, I really see their value now. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you never realize just how much work it is to handle that many people. And so if we're going to 10x our growth, it's going to be really understanding how, I don't know, it's, it seems like a lot of work. <laughs> is that the goal? I mean, sometimes you just want to have good value help you provide to one community, and that's exactly what an organization should pursue. What's the appetite? I'm really ambitious. And I this this work is, is very stressful. And if I'm going to... If this is going to be, if this this is is my life, my life's work, and it's my life work, I want to complete my mission when I'm still alive, you know. And so, if I just get one community to start making money online, that doesn't fix the systemic 
you know, issues that we have in the continent. And if when I look at all the systemic issues that we have, so poverty, for example, I grew up, I grew up in poverty and I know how undignifying it is. And I cannot stand the idea that even though my community is fine, there are thousands of communities out there in the continent that are still suffering. And and I've seen that computers, you know, technology is just an easiest, it's such an because when I think about systemic poverty, and that's what we really have in the continent, I really think that the reason it's like that is because of the systems that we have. And if we look at banking infrastructure, for example, if you want to get a loan to improve your business, you're looking at that 10% interest rate. That is with only one one month grace period. That is insane. No one is going to get a loan for that. And and then if you if you say you, you have a small business selling tomatoes and you want to distribute your tomatoes to other markets and other people, then we have really bad roads and you can't guarantee that your tomato is going to get to the market. And then let's say you make some profits from your small tomato business. You're just a, a woman in the village selling tomatoes and you want to start growing your, your, your rich any profit you make, there's a whole community waiting for your money. Someone someone got sick, you need to, to help with that. Your kid needs to go to school, you're helping with that. There's a funeral fundraiser over here, you need to help with that. And so it's really hard to even grow as a business. And I think that what makes com- communities thrive is to ha- is having this middle middle class level, right? Most people who are not entrepreneurs being able to work and, and earn a living and sustain their families. And if you look at most of the companies in Kenya, it's mostly really s- so many small businesses, like really, really small, like almost like a lemonade, um, a lemonade stand kind of small. And then, then big companies. There isn't as many middle-sized businesses. And, and, and so it's, it's really hard to overcome that systemic changes because systemic issues that are keeping most of the communities poor. And if we are able and to fix that, we need to have better banking system. We need to have better infrastructure. We need to have internet penetrativity. And that is a lot of work. That is so hard to do. That requires a lot of investments. But on the other hand, if we look at computers, all you need is just a computer with some connectivity and you can start making money online. You can start accessing all these companies, right, that are, are online. There are so many companies online that you could work for than they are jobs in a specific place even san francisco i'm sure there are so many jobs online and there are jobs in san francisco and and the good thing with this is that anyone can take part of it anyone can do this and so it doesn't make sense to me to spend all these efforts very stressful work to just get my community to be able to do this where i can get all the communities in africa to do it and so what we are really trying to do is that how can we scale as fast as possible so we can rewrite stories of kids who are growing up the way I did how can we rewrite that story and then also how can we make sure that my story and my generation was the last that we're not going to be the continent that is always the last you know if you look at vaccine we're the last if you look at internet penetration we're the last if you look at something else we're the last right it just it can't keep going on and and so I see this right here distribution of tech as such an easy solution to address all these systemic issues and I won't sleep at night knowing that I'm only doing this for one community. It just, I, I might as well just, I don't know, <laughs> just don't, don't do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the lack of middle tier companies and the lack of a good banking investment scheme seems like another area to tackle this. If it's your like, lifelong mission, will you eventually need to open a bank or can technology be a way to 
cut around the bank and plug directly into the global economy. Yeah, that's that's the goal is that it's going to be really hard to to open a bank and to start giving people easier loans because then you have to think about the credit system, the you know. And so it's it's all really hard. But then really all you need I think all you need is a computer, right? Like I'm a software engineer and I can work from Mogotio or I can work from Chicago. I can work from, you know, in rural Kenya or I can work anywhere in the world. And so and the other thing that we are doing is that we are we are working with these kids. It's part of their lives. We're not a token project that it's only showing up in the summer or once a month or something like that. When these kids go to school, every single day they are learning something that's going to help them in their tech career. Be it, you know, programming, collaborative learning, you know, building a brand. And so they are learning all these things. And then so imagine that when they are graduating high school, we want them to be able to get a job as a software engineer at Google or as a designer on Netflix. And because we are getting the chance, because they're learning this all their lives, right? And they're getting the best <laughs> learning experience and it's something that they're growing up with. And I think that if you graduate uh, high school over there in Kenya and you get a job at Netflix as an engineer, making even if it's 70K a year, that is a lot of money and that goes a long way. And then maybe you can you can make a lot of money and you can become an angel investor there. That is a different problem. And and so the whole idea is that people who get a chance to start working, especially on the philanthropy space, they already have all their issues in their life, not covered, but in a comfortable place. It's going to be really hard to get a Kenyan who is just struggling to make food at night to start thinking about helping their community or tackling, you know, financial infrastructure there. But if you are working at Netflix from, from Mogotio in Kenya and you're making enough money and you're comfortable, you have some savings, then maybe you can tackle a different problem. And so if you can get past the basic poverty, the poverty that is actually affecting people's way of living, then maybe you can have more people fighting different problems, different issues in the in the economy. And so for me, it, it looks like such an easy investment to make so that the next generation of people in the continent don't need aid and they can go on to work on other global issues, climate change, or, uh, what's, whatever, what's <laughs> on all these other issues that we have. Well, to hear that there are people who would take $4 a day as wages is kind of you know unsettling to me. It's not a, a world I'm familiar with. That's actually on the high end. Some people just make a, a dollar. Some people don't even make any money. Wow. Yeah. But then with sites like uh, Fiverr that you mentioned in Upwork, I mean, Fiverr gets its name from a $5 task. I use Fiverr a lot, and I wouldn't pay 5 for anything. I got to pay at least 10 or I assume it's not good. So <laughs> if for one task I can give you 10 days wages, it's easy for me to be the backseat driver and say, well, like, sure, this is a great idea. Let's do it. Why isn't that uh, someone who would take $1 a day, it seems like the internet or a site like Fiverr could be totally transformative for them. What are the blockers stopping them? Yeah. You don't have the skills. Remember, the, most, of this, most of the people in my community and communities like mine have never used a computer before. Mm. Because they're not, they not digital natives, right? Because they grew up in a system where they're just using textbooks, learning about all these things in, from textbooks, graduate high school, cannot uh, maybe go to college, use a computer a little bit to type of an assignment, and then that's it. And then they go back to being farmers 
I'll go back to being a taxi driver. The issue is that they don't have the skills for them to be on Fiverr because on Fiverr, you need someone to help you with your email marketing, SEO marketing, you know, social media or or even a website. They don't have those skills. And even in the beginning, when we tried to kind of just get the youth who are just being taxi drivers in the area, get them to start building websites, we couldn't get them to do it because there's a lot of, if you've never seen a computer before or if you've never worked on a computer, it's really hard for you to go from never using a computer before to start making money online within a month. And then also having to worry about what you're going to eat that night or what your family is going to eat that night. And those, that, that's why when we go to kids and we focus on kids is that we have their own lifetime, like from when they're seven years old to when they're 18, to just kind of make them, you know, digital native, teach them all these skills that don't exist in the area. When students come to the classroom for the first time, how many of them is that their first interaction with a computer? 99%. <laughs> there isn't. It's, it's, it's so hard to paint that picture. There isn't any. Because we even when we talk to the high school, the teachers in the schools, when we talk to them and tell them about the value of the computers, they don't believe us because there's no mental model. There's nothing they could map into. Like, oh, this is what they could do. And even when we were working with adults and trying to get them to, just trying to get them to build a website, WordPress website, we just, we were there and pair programming with them. And we're telling them, all they kept saying is that nobody works for the internet. You know, for them, it's like the internet's the employer. Nobody works for the internet. They just did not believe us. And it didn't matter what we said. They just did not believe us. So it takes a lot of education. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of trial and error to show that this is this is possible but there really isn't it's not I don't even imagine like no no experience whatsoever and then the people who have the internet they spend most of the time you have to pay for it's very expensive because you're paying per MB or per GB and then you only have it for one hour so you're only using it for social media mostly and then you're done you won't be using the internet to learn a skill or try to produce something that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that time pressure is something uh, I fortunately never had to face with my internet access. Well, that's not totally true. Not for many, many years. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, even back then when the internet was really slow, no one was really learning, you know. Like right now you can just learn everything and you can learn anything and start producing and make money online. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about different ways people can help. Uh, we've touched on one, and that's giving machines. Can you share some more explicit instructions? If I'm an IT manager with a warehouse full of things I'd like to get rid of, how do I get in touch with you? You can reach out to me or my co-founder, Tyler, uh, from our website. From our website, uh, my email is on there. Or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. And we're very responsive, too. So if you reach out, we can figure something out how to get the computers over either to Texas or to us in Chicago or straight to Kenya. So that's one way people can help with computers. Another way people can help, especially the listeners, is that if they can make an investment monthly. So, for example, if they can donate $50 a month. So we have on our website, we have an option to donate monthly. So it's part of a of a group called the network. And that kind of investments just make sure that the teachers that we have on the ground are getting paid. Because we, we pay them a good wage 
to be able to teach the kids and be able to focus on just providing the best education for kids. And also we pay for them to be trained. And so if you're making a donation of $50 a month or $100 a month, you're guaranteeing that one school is getting techlet access a month. Or if you make a donation for one year, you're guaranteeing that one school is getting techlet access for, for one year. And you're impacting about, you know, a thousand kids. So it's really, really, really big impact. And then also most people are not ready to come in at, you know, at a monthly donation, make a one-time donation. And most of that money either goes towards running the operations on the ground, which is the, the, the teachers, make sure that the teachers are able to get paid and run the computers every day, run the classes every day. Or it means getting the computers over to Kenya so that we can get the programs programs running. And we also accept crypto donations. Uh, that's something that we are currently supporting. Is there a third option? You mentioned describing like the React game you'd built to teach children how to type. Is there an off- opportunity for a software engineer to volunteer their time and help with your Linux stack and all, all the software that goes out? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> how would someone reach I- out? I think obviously just through emailing and and just communication because we have we have different things going on we have you know we have LDAP for our login system you know the, the and the intranet server we have some different react applications to run in the in the rooms uh, we have our website that you see that uh, our techlet website that is mostly react and rails and then we also have a donor, donation management system. So just depending on what excites you, we have projects for everything. <laughs> well, very cool. Well, Nelly, I really like what you're doing. Uh, I support the project. I uh, wish you the best of luck and want to continue seeing what you do. And uh, let's talk again at some point on Software Engineering Daily. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you, Kyle.